0: I'm Kate Remington with three of the amazing people who made the game Pentiment. It's set in the Middle Ages and just at the very beginning of the Renaissance. Josh Sawyer, the game's creator at Obsidian. It's really great to talk with you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And I've got two of the members of the early music ensemble that created the soundtrack Alchemy, Tracy Cowart and Sean Ricketts. And it's really great to meet both of you guys as well.
2: We're delighted to be here. We love talking about the music of this amazing game.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Josh, I'm so curious about the setting of this game because I can't think of another game that's set in this time period. I mean, it's kind of weird that Assassin's Creed sort of skipped over it. But um, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about what drew you to this particular time period or the setting in uh, Bavaria in the Middle Ages.
1: Yeah, it's funny you should say that about assassin's creed assassin's creed did have a game set in the italian renaissance assassin's creed 2 but i think that gamers or gaming in general kind of has this big gap there's this nebula there's like ancient times and then middle ages or medieval times and then we kind of skip forward to like the civil war and there's like everything in between just kind of is vaguely like, yeah, something happened, we don't really know. Um, But when I was in college, I studied early modern history, and a lot of it focused on um, really the 16th century through the 18th century, because I focused a lot of my attention on the, actually the history of witch hunting, which uh, was predominantly in the Holy Roman Empire, which is largely Germany now, and uh, the surrounding areas. So through that, I became more familiar with the other conflicts that were going on during that time. So the Reformation obviously was happening, the German Peasants War or the Revolution of 1525, um, the Thirty Years War happening later in the century. So it was a time of really a lot of social upheaval and change. And I've always really been interested in transitory periods where you see that society is really going through a lot of both technological and social change And the 16th century in the Holy Roman Empire certainly qualifies. So that really interested me. And then my family background and sort of cultural interests are largely aligned with German music, leader, um, and things of that nature, German romantic poetry. So I just have an affinity for the culture and the language. And uh, yeah, I just felt like it was a, a very good fit.
0: It's amazing. The authenticity is incredible. I've, I've been lucky enough to go to the Wartburg Castle in Eisenach, where Luther like hid out and, and was writing. <laughs> and then, and then uh, to uh, the uh, in Wittenberg, where he nailed the, the treatises on the doors of the church and everything. And you really captured that time period. And part okay. of the reason for that, yeah, sure. Part of the reason for that is the authentic soundtrack. And so how did you and alchemy kind of hook up?
1: So it actually happened through someone that I, I originally went to school for music at Lawrence Conservatory. And even though I didn't stay in the music program, I remained friends with some of the people that were in my class or around my class. And one of them was uh, Carrie Shaw, who is a wonderful soprano, and she also does some work with early music. And because I had remained in contact with her and actually sort of indirectly actually sang with her on a soundtrack for another game that I worked on, <laughs> um, I said, like, do you know any people who do early music that would be interested, like, a, a, an ensemble that would be interested in doing a soundtrack for a game like this? And she pointed me towards Sean, and that's kind of how it started. I, although I don't even remember exactly how I opened the the email to Sean <laughs> or how I made contact. <laughs>
3: You know, I think you emailed me, it's possible to contact us through our website, which comes to me. Uh, So I think you emailed and you just, you know, you said you were working on a historically set video game, and you were wondering if we were interested in talking to you more about it. And from our perspective, we are kind of medieval specialists, but we do music, you know, for many centuries, and we also consume many other types of media. And one thing that we often lament is that you know there's so many movies and series and and kind of products that are based in the medieval period or a fantasy world that approximates it but they rarely include the sound of the period and you'll read these articles about how seamstresses are hand sewing all of the beads on these costumes and you're like we want to participate too (laughs) (laughs) think we have something that could
2: enrich the experience even we swear I swear, it's worth <laughs> it. Yeah. so to get this email
3: and then the first conversation with josh was just i mean it was no question it was like oh that is our deepest dream actually we'd love to be involved
0: <laughs> <laughs> well how did you guys get involved in early music in the first place because it's such a specialized field
2: you want to go first Shawn? sure
3: uh so basically, I was a classically trained singer and oboist and pianist. And I encountered early music at a time when, uh, you know, for those of us, the people out there who are going to become and who are orchestral musicians, it's like being in the NBA of music. Mm-hmm. You have to do this very specific thing at such a high level. And that is really beautiful, but can also feel kind of limiting artistically. Um, Because the premise is like you have to spend all your time practicing this specific thing to get that kind of job and I was simultaneously trying to do that and also yearning for other things. And so when I first encountered early music, it seemed so exciting that there was so much creativity involved. There actually was a struggle for me because I was joking that Tracy is a really good student, so was I, and so I'm really good at following instructions, so there was this period of like, what do you mean? I decide what the phrase is. Like, can't you tell me what the right way is to play this phrase? Where's the dopamine in doing what you tell me is the right way? (laughs) But the older I get, the more I'm drawn to early and earlier music, which demands more and more creativity. And at this point, that's my favorite thing about being a musician, Um, and especially collaborating, because your, my colleagues have so much more amazing ideas that I could ever have, but because we're in a band together, I get to participate in those awesome ideas. <laughs> so yeah, and Tracy had a different a bit of a different route
2: different route, but kind of the same uptake uh, I came to music later than most of my colleagues. I started my master's in music with no undergrad training at the age of 27. Ow. and So I I didn't, I was blissfully ignorant. I would have never tried this and I would not be where I am now. So being blissfully ignorant, I essentially went and auditioned for the NBA and got in. And it was like, hey guys, I want to play. So what's our starting lineup? You know? And people were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So, you know, at that time, I was like, okay, I got some things to learn. But I started in my first vocal performance class. We like started with Monteverdi, which was like for me than like really early before and like it was just this gateway drug where I was like you know I knew I was supposed to be working on romantic like art song and that was really cool but there were a lot of people who were doing that really well and then there was this like vast feel that a lot of people were like uh oh, there'd be dragons you know like we don't go there we just want you to know from whence we came and I was like whoa what's over here guys so um so I kind of started just immediately even though I thought I was gonna be, become an opera like an opera singer I like just immediately got hooked And then my training very quickly veered in that direction. And um, I found it also the early music community tends to be kind of very open and welcoming. And I think that is because it is a little bit of a younger scene, although it continues to
3: Not younger in age, but in terms of when the scene started happening in America. Right, right. It's like, yeah, still has a bit of the hippie spirit of the people who really founded the field in America in the 60s and 70s who were, like figuring out how to build these instruments, figuring out how to play them, like jamming together, being like, how do we research this music? Yeah. Like, so it, it does have that kind of really welcoming, creative, investigatory sure vibe. Yeah, And I just loved it.
0: Well, it's so cool because it's like, there's this big gap of knowledge because, you know, with Mozart and Brahms and Shostakovich, there's this through line and people, people know them, you know, you can go back a few generations and and talk to you know find out you know who studied with brahms and the kind of knowledge that they shared but there's this big gap with music from the middle ages and you can't talk to hildegard of bingen or do wish
4: or... We, could. <laughs> we, could solve, we
2: could solve arguments although they still may, might not help us make the musical decisions right we'd be like okay fine she did it that way but
3: but we're still gonna maybe do this other thing <laughs> sorry
4: hildegard <laughs> we love you <laughs>
0: Well Josh I'm really curious about how you guys collaborated. I mean you you've got a background in this time frame um and and you guys you know brought the expertise for the music but you know how did that like click with all of you guys?
1: Um I think that the first piece was kind of a test of mood more than anything. Um so we had a scene that was the discovery of the baron's body and I think if I recall correctly, I described some pieces where I was like, mm, kind of feeling like this. And, and a lot of the time, I think probably Tracy and Sean got sick of me saying like dread or like <laughs> doom. Never, never. Um, we can never get sick of that. <laughs> um, but I was, you know, because I was thinking about a lot about the, the 1986 film with the name of the Rose. James Horner did a soundtrack that had some really nice, like kind of droning, dreadful vibes to it. Um, and i didn't want to copy that but i liked that the evocation of mood in that and um and i obviously i don't want to dick i don't know what i'm doing like i i trust (laughs) i trust sean and tracy to you know kind of fill in the blanks where i'm saying like vaguely things and so they came up with the first piece which was the body and that was used in our prototype if i recall correctly and it was very effective and the team really loved it and people outside of the team who heard it were like whoa that is cool (laughs) And then that was kind of the, like, okay, we can do this and this, this can sound unique and interesting, but also evocative of other things and not, you know, like just made up out of whole cloth. There's like period instruments and things being used. And I think after that point, I did make a decision which continues to irritate people, um, (laughs) which is that there is not a continual running soundtrack in the game. Most of the time in the game, you hear just whatever the ambient sound is, because I wanted it to feel like a real place with a kind of uh, limited separation between the natural world and the sort of indoor spaces. And I wanted music to be used more for bigger events and dramatic events, although we did have a lot of those. So then a lot of our focus, uh, or my focus was to identify the key moments that needed music and then to describe kind of the feeling and the mood and then uh Sean and Tracy would come back with like how about this how about that and I I might I might be misremembering this so so if you want to step in and like describe how it actually worked um
3: (laughs) well it's interesting because for us this was our first commercial music venture so usually our process and I think uh, this might come up later, but we're making a lot of decisions as medieval music musicians and we're making them based on text, honestly, usually like for us, we usually tell ourselves a narrative description <laughs> if, if, that we decide that piece is doing. It's like we get to know it. And then those decisions kind of iterate out from there where you're like, we think that this has a very sweet vibe. Like what instruments do we have that evoke that? Like, how is that going to be reflected in the arrangement choices that we're doing? So it was interesting so instead of us making that decision, it was Josh would decide that, and then we would decide what that meant, and then agree <laughs> on it with all six of us, and then come back, make something that we thought was a good idea, and then be like, okay, Josh, here's our art project, do you like it? And as we, as we started, that's kind of where we started, and then we as we got more experience working together and doing it, we, we kind of gained the ability to send kind of less fleshed out sketches. Um, One unique thing about us is that we are composers, we're composing our own music that goes with and adds to the medieval music that we're doing in concert all the time. But we compose with our own instruments, we don't compose, you know, with a keyboard and MIDI samples, that's just not in our, that's our that's not our process. And so in order for us to create a draft, we actually had to play well all of the parts multi-tracked in our different houses during COVID and put it together well enough that it would be like, yeah, this could sound good, Josh. But as we (laughs) went on, we were able to kind of streamline that, where we were able to say, here's the melody instrument playing the line. We think we're going to accompany it in this way. Does this seem like a good path to go down? yeah, we were, we have a friend who was joking that we should release we should an release outtakes it. album <laughs> called Pen- Penitent. Penitent.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> because we actually like,
0: <laughs> like our original drafts,
3: some of them are like, yeah, that's a really cool piece of music, but it wasn't the right piece of music for that, that particular job, but we didn't know it yet.
2: And I think there were, there were two kind of interesting things that we discovered as part of this process, right? That, so... So we were, Josh, correct me wrong, but we were kind of working together, right? Like Josh would send us a description and a narrative, but we weren't seeing the animation that right. we were then composing to. And so, so then we would send him back. And by the time we'd send him something, you would have something from the animation team. And then you could see how they kind of work together. Right. And it, towards the end, we would you'd be able to send like a picture. Like, this is a still, we all know if a picture tells a million words, <laughs> like animation tells like, you know, exponentially oh, more. Yeah. And so. So you know, it was also just that process of then when we saw the final, like where it ended up going when we saw like the final animation with the final music. It was one of those moments where I, I, mean, I
3: get back to us made so much so sense. So much sense. <laughs> we're like Josh was not wrong. We were. He's totally he's right. Totally about right. Totally right. We we're like because
2: we'd be like, this is a great piece. Why is it not working? And as part of the uh, national, the-
3: We just gave a talk at the North American uh, Society for video game music. That's and awesome. so we put together as part of it, we talked about kind of using materials throughout the game, similar melodic materials, uh, but we also talked and about- And then I took, I
2: took like the finished animation and then put our drafts onto that. So you could kind of see mm-hmm. how the draft worked with it. Like, cause no one else has had that experience except for you, Josh, yeah. including <laughs> us. And then like, as I was watching him go by, I was like, oh yeah. I can like where it ended up was always like oh that's
3: really much better that's
1: really much better and and it's 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 funny too what you were saying about like yeah early on um because you're an ensemble there was like a big focus on get every uh, getting everything to sound so good together and i I think we had a conversation at one point where i said look i know that in the end it's going to sound fantastic i have no doubt about your ability to just be competent musicians it's so like (laughs) at the the draft stage it's it's like if you literally just gave me one instrument with the melody at the right tempo and then said and then told me like we're gonna put this over the top or this percussion or whatever that is so much more necessary to me as the foundation rather than like again like you know, squirreling away and having six people make this incredibly (laughs) layered thing and then giving it to me. I'm like, this is awesome and completely wrong. Um,
3: (laughs) I mean, it was fascinating because for us too, so we'd never kind of been a part of a collaborative compositional process with someone not in our ensemble, course, that was definitely a learning experience. And
2: we've always assumed until now we were like, if, if the six of us can convince each other that that's that, will, that so must be it it will be, it will be universal we will have discovered a universal truth and this really brought into question that assumption we we're like not for not for josh and the team
3: <laughs> but also the <laughs> thing is is that we only one of our members had any multi-tracking experiences where the the musicians are recording their, their lines separately and then you have put them together in right. post and so we started out the very first prototype we did not do that way we did it in person the way that we up to then that's how we made all of our music but over covid obviously that wasn't going to be possible and so we bought recording equipment for everybody and taught us to all use it at a rudimentary level that was like act one then (laughs) in the middle of act two we'd in the middle of act one we were like oh god we need to hire an audio engineer for this project. This is how the process that ultimately ended in, we're a medieval ensemble with a technical director. It's very <laughs> important to us. We need him for everything that we do. But we didn't know that in you know, mid 2020. So, and then, so we hired, started hiring our friend who became our technical director. He, in the course of the pandemic, he works for an amazing recording studio. He built his own recording studio within the big studio. And literally the first thing that was ever recorded in there were drafts for act two. (laughs) Like he had just like put in, finalized the machine and we got in there. And then by act three, in part because of the the course that the pandemic took, it was easier for us to be in one place. And so the dream process that we ended on is we still recorded multi-tracked, but we did it all in the same place at the same time so we could in real time pivot to say oh i know you did this base layer that was great but now that we've added these other things we say we need to re-record that let's do that right now and josh was very kind josh because i him. <laughs> basically was like our schedules are really tight we need immediate feedback on these days in july august and september like can you like within the hour, tell us your thoughts so that we can immediately change things that they need to be changed. And because Josh was very kind to work within those parameters, that actually worked really well. And it was really fun. Yeah. Because then it's like the joy of we don't as classical musicians usually get the joy of like studio composing, like when you hear about the Beatles in the studio <laughs> making the song, we got to have that. So that was really, really fun for us.
0: Yeah, I'll bet. Well, it must have been great to have somebody else to set up the recordings and stuff. Cause you know, violins get recorded all the time and pianos and guitars and stuff, but you need somebody with expertise who can record a regal and make it sound good or a crumb horn.
3: We've trained, we've trained our technical director, yeah. Charles Mueller. He can do anything. At this point, we were talking at one point about like using a different studio. We
2: were brainstorming with him as like technical director. He's like, well, I mean at this point i think i'm the only person who really knows how to record you we we're like we don't you're you're absolutely right <laughs> we never want anyone else
3: <laughs> and he started to have josh we never talked about this but if you heard the kind of water dropping sounds and mm-hmm. the mithraeum that is us in the studio recording we tried to pour water as slowly as possible and then we it slowed it fast. down <laughs> like four times so we and that was charles's idea he's like guys I've got a plan. (laughs) What if we got to get a picture
2: in here?
1: (laughs) Meanwhile, there's like, you know, mics and cords everywhere. It was like,
3: like,
2: things can go totally wrong, but the risk is worth it. It
3: (laughs) And at that point, we had also bought all these bells because we did this other show, this Hildegard show, and we had forgotten to bring our auxiliary percussion. And so we Amazoned like all the bells we could Amazon Prime. They sounded... (laughs) Very entertaining, but at a, at a certain point we were, we were like, "What if? Do we think we need some like chiming in the myth room? Like, oh no, too much chiming. Sounds like a cowbell. <laughs> <laughs> got a smaller, smaller chiming. Anyway, so we had we had a lot of fun, as I think is
4: evident. <laughs>
0: Well, and just the the joy of being able to play in a studio at at some times, you know, with with each other rather than sitting at home with your recording stuff. I mean, because, you know, ideas bounce around a whole lot faster then.
3: It's true, although Tracy maybe uniquely loved the the separated multi-tracking process. I
2: did. I did in part because you could, I, I could just go in really deep and try things that we didn't necessarily have time in for a studio and i could do it also josh has heard me talk about this before but on my own schedule which gets weird late at night that's where i feel like i act like access like like some like off-limits creative juices for normal operation and so so like i really enjoyed in the early pandemic like just being really creative with recording and i could do things that then nicola at the time would then extract moments from and layer them in ways that that was really fun and and i was comfortable with the recording of technology so it didn't feel bad to me where i think sean sean has a personal poltergeist <laughs> that she inherited from her mother
3: i like that we're telling this story on this podcast i know i, I know, know it's it's to be like i feel that i have a technology poltergeist but really it's just it's a personal problem it's i'm a terrible nerd. millennial I'm like, I don't understand technology. I'm a medieval lady, you know, so that's fine. <laughs> I'm comfortable with the technology of the medieval period. And so for me, I was never comfortable. And even in act two, when we did some remote stuff, I actually just hired Charles, our, our audio engineer to to record my stuff with me because I was like, I'm so stressed out by just operating that part of the equipment. I can't do a good job as a musician. I think
2: you'd been coming, she would always come to me and I would do it and then I wasn't available. And it was like, Sean, this is your chance to learn it. She was like, nope,
3: can't do it. Charles, <laughs>
4: are you available?
3: <laughs> emergency, I'm having an emergency.
0: <laughs> well, well, Josh, I'm really curious about aspects of the music because yes, it's very authentic, but there are other moments like you said, in the Mithraeum with extra sounds and, Things that, you know, Guillaume Dufay wouldn't have known about. <laughs> and so did that come from you a little bit? Did you drive that sort of extra creativity?
1: Um, I don't think so, except that I, I think that especially when we were dealing with stuff that was more ancient, um, like truly getting into, you know, the Mithraim, we're talking about stuff that is is uh, generously like third century, maybe, like probably <laughs> first or second century, the common era. And so I think that, you know, like initially I think that Sean was really like going back to the beginning of the project, there was this kind of very strict band of German, 16th century, and that was really constraining. And then I was like, let's, mm, you know, like (laughs) we can go backwards a few centuries and we can go out a little bit. We can go to France, we can go to Italy, like we can go around. And that opened up a lot more things um to work with, and then, yeah, I think for the things that were um like the mithraram, where it's like it's supposed to be it's supposed to feel very ancient and not necessarily like a strictly historical piece um and obviously, I'm just it didn't come from me is what I'm saying is like I think it was just more like well, we it, it we don't need to make this sound like a fifteenth century whatever, so. Evoking more ancient instruments, um, I think, was kind of just a felt like a good solution to that to make it.
3: And I think earlier on, I think your feedback, you didn't explicitly like release us from any sort of boundaries that were self-imposed, but your feedback recognized that we submitted some kind of crazy sounding things and you were like, oh, this is really great. This is the tone that I want, like melancholia enthroned, Mm -hmm. you know, one of. One of the things in in act two, as the, the city is splintering, but we submitted two very different drafts, like almost polar opposite. And Josh said, actually, I love these both. We're gonna use them both. <laughs> like these are both sonic directions that it would be good to head into. And that was really freeing.
2: yeah, and I think we kind of got so our starting point was we always used acoustic instruments, right? But then we would and so the the instruments were always like we didn't suddenly use a tuba, you know, like we didn't we didn't go forward <laughs> that way, but we would do things like occasionally I would put a pickup on my bray harp and that would create an almost electric like, guitar sound in certain places. they're they're kind of varying the texture, but it's there. And so there's like we started kind of introducing what like modern some processing, some processing. of the sound, yeah. and in
4: a way
3: that actually in act one one of the first things that we did "Quia uh, ergo the uh, sister Amelie's first vision uh we did use like delay on the voice and some processing right and but it seemed like it was just it didn't take us out of the tone world that we would created no it's, it like, it's like, like it was a just adding.
2: that kind of so we got we never got Basically, when those drafts and those final versions were accepted, we were kind of like, okay, okay, like these elements are seeming to work kind of in a mindful way, coming back to the ultimate mega dread, you know. (laughs) We were we tried to access that through a lot of processing and then eventually kind of narrowed the processing down and ended up with kind of like a solo bagpipe. But then we had a vial that we recorded and was it just with a fuzz pedal. Fuzz pedal, yeah.
3: He, but it was on his pitch level. He tuned his string down to get that uh, low string. And then we there's kind of screechy high vial drones that also were processed a little bit. I think the biggest thing, from a technical standpoint, maybe too technical, but because we're working with our instruments, that especially our instruments, with my winds and her harps, they're not chromatic. They're not fully mm-hmm. chromatic instruments, or they are with great difficulty. Mm-hmm. So that actually constrained us a lot. Right. Like we weren't going to be doing a lot of really atonal lines right. because our instruments right. just don't do that well. Yeah. So even in the music that we're newly creating, we're kind of in this modal world because that's those are the tools we're using. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I, I, I was like, I'm like <laughs> I can jump on top of
2: that too. For the lithium, <laughs> one of the things that make the Greek music sound so different is one of our ensemble members, Nicolo. Had just composed a new opera about the Iliad. Is he that right? scored
3: a theatrical production of the Iliad, wow. and so had looked into early Greek tuning practices.
2: And as part of that, because those were kind of out of what everything else we were doing, you know, we did tune a lyre in in a, a way that involves microtones and tuning systems that sound just slightly outside of what we're used to. And I think that was part of what helped it sound so divorced from right the reality in which we
3: were in and the same thing with the cantile the melody instrument on that piece is also tuned in that and so for me because my wind instruments my two sons are so flexible I was like I can just I can just match those weird microtones. it's fine
4: thanks
0: (laughs) (laughs) well in the course of his sort of I guess investigation the painter Andreas talks with so many people in this, in this small town. And there are people who are, you know, kind of important characters like sister Amelie. And so Josh, I'm wondering what kind of guidance you gave to them to give her a sort of a musical signature.
1: Um, So I don't know if I, I don't want to spoil things in the story, but like, I don't know if I necessarily described um, her importance in the overall story, except that she is like more or less literally at the center of the entire community um it is not an accident that the church yard is impossible to it's the only map that you cannot avoid when going between the abbey and the town you have to go past the church um and and she is right there so we knew that she was always going to be there and that her visions were going to be very important in the story and because she is a mystic because she is a benedictine um granted it's it's centuries after hildegard but i think that it just felt very appropriate to use hildegard's music with her because they have a lot of parallels in many ways and i think i i think that's kind of how how we arrived at that. And then because I knew that she was going to be coming back at multiple points, um, then that became kind of her theme. Like most characters in the game don't have theme music, but I think that she might be the only one who actually does um, hmm. outside of maybe the Baron's death song. Um, but even that comes back in a different form for, for Otto. So yeah, I think it, it was just because of her recurring central place in the community and the story that it felt, kind of good to focus on using Hildegard's music and then reworking it in later acts.
0: Well, it must have been really fun for you guys to kind of give Hildegard's music a a new spin. And, you know, for anybody who doesn't know her, she was a late, what, late 11th, early 12th century mystic abbess. People would come, like leaders of communities would come to her for, like, advice. And we've got all her, you know, much of her music left. And so, Sean and Tracy, it must have been fun to kind of, you know, bring her music in, too.
2: We, I mean, we love her. I think she's just <laughs> such a rich fount. I don't know of anyone who's played Hildegard's music who's been like, you know what, overrated. Everyone's <laughs> like, whoa, it's so good. But I've been wondering for a while, actually, Josh, so you were the one who specifically, you recommended Hildegard, but you also recommended, she wrote a ton of melodies, and we have the music for all of them. And you recommended specifically Quia Ergo Femina. And why that one out of all the possibilities?
1: Yeah, I had gone through... Um... I had gone through a number of musical pieces that she had done and it was specifically because that is about the redemptive, like sort of the um, woman as a, a kind of co-redeemer in a way of, of humanity. So Hildegard speaking about redemption through a woman and then having a female mystic who is going through this very, cause she's, it's not just that Amelie is a mystic. She's also an anchoress, which is, <laughs> most people didn't even know that Anchoresis existed. Uh, and it's quite shocking when you actually learn like, yeah, this is for real. And it just felt when I read the lyrics to Queer Ergo Femina, uh, I was like, yeah, this piece, like, and then I heard the music. I'm like, both the melody and the lyrics feel very appropriate for this woman in this place and time.
0: Yeah, and and your arrangement of it, it's really stunning. So it must have been just an amazing thing to work on.
3: Yeah, we love, this is one of those things where Josh did not know this about us, but we love performing Hildegard so much and have, and our, our kind of personal ethos in approaching Hildegard is that we want to get at the variety of superlative feelings and imagery that she talks about in her text, we want to evoke that musically. Yeah. So we were super excited to get to work on those tracks because that is really one of our favorite activities.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And I think is, um, it was also fun as an, I mean, we are an instrumental vocal ensemble and so our take on Hildegard tends to be somewhat different than uh, other groups that are entirely vocal and tend to have vocal, but because we are this instrumental vocal ensemble we already had experience kind of rendering her chant into instrumental textures, because it's the kind of thing it's like, it's why I learned how to play the harp is because they were jamming and I want to play along. And, like, if we're just singing a cappella, the instruments usually want to participate. And so we all just end up always, you know. We have a like, lot of 2D pieces. We have a lot of 2D pieces. <laughs> but in terms of themes, you know, one of the nice things about. So the, the the Hildegard theme for Sister Amelie is consistent. And then when we get to the title screen, there were kind of two different themes that were in. Um, that were vying vying for title screen first place and the first one is is the fortuna desperata theme which formed the backbone of a lot of the music throughout the throughout the arch of the the whole piece and i know we just
3: especially things that have to do with andreas like yeah and his activities and viewpoint and, and appearances yeah um so that that was one melody that we knew we kind of this is one thing where when we wrote this talk, Josh, I wrote the sentence that was like, it would have been really good to get com- confirmation from Josh that we were going to use renaissance pieces that reworked to the same theme throughout or themes the- Or themes throughout the game. And that's going <laughs> to form structure for us. Does that sound like a good
4: idea? No, instead, we
3: just were like, we pushed our polyphonic agenda upon you. <laughs> and with results that were, I mean, some good some we had to go in a different direction but but because in the renaissance period people were writing and reworking these same themes and the fortuna desperata theme that we hear so much it was hugely popular like
2: it was the most popular italian song so many people reworked it
3: yeah in the Hmm. late 15th and 16th century and it was really like throughout europe all of these different settings so that kind of became a secret theme we made for Andreas. <laughs> right. So,
2: <you> <laughs> so and it's like in some, like a middle line sometimes, and sometimes it's soloed. But it was when we were doing the music for the title screen, of course, we were like, well, Fortuna Desperata has to be the opening theme for the title screen. And then we we submitted it and, and the feedback was, you know, it feels a little too ambient. It just doesn't quite have enough mystery. So we were like, well, you know who's really good at sounding mysterious is Hildegard.
3: Our Lady lady Hildegard. And so it was amazing and we wanted to, this is something that we thought about more explicitly as we went on, which is how do these basic medieval features that we kind of take for granted in our lives in scholarship and performance, how does that map on to the 2022 human experiences? And one of those is that things in the Phrygian mode, you know, the mode starting on E that starts with the the Uh, minor second, Mm-hmm. Feels really mysterious. It's really different than kind of our modern major and minor tonalities. Mm-hmm. And so, and that is the the mode that Quea Ergo is in. And so I basically sent a variety of I thought e-mode contenders to David McCormick, <laughs> who plays the vial solo. And I was like, choose a thing, make an arrangement that works for for us. But actually, what he chose was O Virtus Sapientiae, which mm-hmm. is about the female personification of wisdom. <laughs> Just, so, that is who is the title screen. It's secretly <laughs> Our Lady of Wisdom. <laughs>
0: Well, Josh, it sounds like you kind of handicapped them a little bit because normally when a composer would score a cutscene, he, he or she gets to see the cutscene, but <laughs> but they didn't get to do that. So it's just remarkable that the music is such a great fit with these moments. And so, how did you take what they sent you and then kind of wrangle it into into the game, into those moments?
1: Yeah, it was it was difficult because the, actually, I would say that this whole process um, was very unusual for. Um, not just myself, but I think games in general, it's very typical in game development that maybe ideas for the soundtrack are experimented with. They're usually experimented with digitally. Um, They might be played on a synthesizer and you, you basically don't have much music for a very long time. And then toward the end of the production, the single composer will compose everything and then you'll get the synth version of all that stuff, and then you kind of get feedback on that, and then they will go, maybe, uh, depending on budget, <laughs> to work with an orchestra <laughs> and then record it, all the orchestral versions. And then kind of at the last minute, you go, mm, 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 and you like shove it all into the game, and you go, hey, it's done. it, Bitch. <laughs> <it, laughs> I, know, I mean, but that's really kind of how it works in a lot of cases and sometimes it works out well and sometimes it really doesn't. But for this project, I wanted to, I really wanted to start much earlier, but the compromise there was that you're making musical choices for things that you're kind of guessing at or I'm vi- I'm basically vibe checking everything because I can't send stuff to them or the things I can send to them are fairly limited. Um, also, for a lot of the project, to be honest, we had we had an animation debt. So we were supposed to be staffed with a certain number of animators, and hiring was very difficult, um, in part because of the nature of the game. It's 2D. Um, it uses sort of an animation package that a lot of animators aren't familiar with. Most animators aren't really 2D animators. They focus more on 3D. So it was very challenging uh, staffing up. So even if in the schedule we were supposed to have things that were at least blocked in animation-wise the best I could do would be to send them a picture of a scene with some characters and say like, imagine that they're, you know, doing something here. Um, (laughs) Imagine that the lighting is totally different. Imagine there's a mob. Imagine this and that. And like, and so there's kind of an act of faith there. And I, I had a picture of it in my head. And so it was, that's not fair, but like, so it would be like, I would describe it and I see it. And obviously we're not synoptic. We can't all like understand that mental image. not yet if only we could it would
3: have made it so much easier (laughs) so then
1: but then i would get something back and that's where the sort of vibe checking would come in and that's why ultimately you know in the end that kind of shift to just send me a basic melody on a single instrument you know as light and quick as you can do it because it it usually like either the vibe and the tone is on or it's completely off and if it's completely off there's really no need to waste your time And by excluding that, then I can put your minds towards something more productive and not an ideal way to work necessarily. But I do think that being able to build that relationship over time and that collaboration in the end produced really great results. And I am glad that once we got into act three, where it was like, there's so much catch up to do. um, You know, I had to make it a priority of like, it was so time compressed that I did have to say, and I told my team, I'm like, by the way, this week, everything anything that i'm doing can be interrupted if i need to review a piece of music and get feedback immediately and when i was in when i was in so i was in germany i was in cologne and later in copenhagen and i remember we had like the copenhagen accord where it was like there were these like sticking points on certain and it was i felt really bad honestly because act three had certain pieces where i kept bouncing i kept bouncing the things they submitted and my feedback i recognized was not constructive i was like i don't know how are you guys
3: oh my gosh josh we had a subsequent realization about that actually which is something we didn't think about like in analytical terms at the time is that we had a kind of shift like when we're doing a lot of the monophony that we do we do a lot of like improvised word painting like Mm -hmm. if we're singing a song about birds RVLs make bird songs and sometimes tracy makes sense (laughs) and it's like you know sometimes there's a cow but we're doing a lot of that kind of action or word word painting painting. and basically for us we want to invent new term for doing that to something that is animated which is action painting (laughs) and one thing that that became clear to us through the process was that our our first instinct was to do action painting but actually what we needed was to create something that represented the emotional state of the character who's seeing the action which is really different so if you're seeing something catastrophic it's like are you going to make sounds that musically symbolize catastrophe or are you going to have a really desolate melody that's like that's the feeling of catastrophe in your heart
4: mm-hmm. yeah. and so
3: that that and even when we did it we did know i think one of your questions you flooded was was there anything that you were really excited to be like i know this is going to be great but when you got to the final track of City of Madness that we submitted to you, we were like, we felt it. We we're like, were like, it's been such a long journey, but we're pretty sure this is it. And it was when we shifted from this action painting approach to this emotional expression approach. Of how you feel Of how you action. feel watching the action. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's a moment where where the deer is killed and the music that accompanies that is that whole scene is just so sad because <laughs> the deer yeah. doesn't die right away and it's it's really powerful and that music like really underscores those emotions so well done you guys
2: the text of that <laughs> song is a thousand regrets
3: yeah mm. it, and it was one of the most popular sad songs and this is also something that we learned is that kind of our initial instincts we're generally on topic for things that were sad or sweet that we're like oh yeah we we got that but i think it's actually just in our normal lives like we aren't scoring doom a lot <laughs> I
0: mean, that's
3: really changed that's, we, 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 we now learned do, a lot from yeah. this
2: game do, yeah
0: thread. <laughs> so you're ready to take on mick gordon then in his soundtrack for doom <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: Josh's feedback was like, I don't think I'm explaining this to you well enough. I don't think you're getting it. What I need is Mega Dread. <laughs> <laughs> Which I wanted a t shirt in 1980.
4: Spots. Yeah, <laughs> yeah called it fan okay. name." <laughs> oh.
3: Just because, and this is one of the things that we showed in our talk, actually, because of the draft that was rejected, we were like, we've never made anything so dreadful in our lives. Josh was like, no, I'm not feeling it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think, but that was the, the sticking point where I was like, God, I'm not, I can't articulate the issue here. I'm I'm like, I, I it doesn't sound right to me, but I don't have the vocabulary or Something either I'm not critically analyzing it well enough or I'm not articulating it well enough. And that's why it felt so bad because that's an awful, as a director, that's the worst position to be in where you're like, this doesn't work, but I can't tell you why it's like, That's not good direction.
2: (laughs) Well, I have to say, I can't remember our conversation, but I remember you were really supportive and, like, clear about, like, what was not working, and then the next draft we submitted was the final one. So, at the time, we were, like, well, we hope he either likes it or he's, like, you know what, this is what, this is what we got. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Josh, I mean, you set yourself a really steep learning curve because this isn't like any other game you've made and it's with a, a much, much smaller team. And so it sounds like you right out of the gate gave yourself a whole new set of challenges. So that must have been a little bit tough, too.
1: Um, I, Sort of. I mean, I guess the thing is um, I, I made kind of a, a cynical bet on this, which was, we had just been acquired by Microsoft, and um, Microsoft is a very large company. And I was asking for what, in the grand scheme of things, is not a lot of money to make a game. It's a very small team and a very small game. And uh, Xbox, to their credit, they embraced it essentially as an art project. And they were like, "Yeah, like let's just make this be cool." I'm not really—they're just like not really worried about the monetary side of it. And I was like, "Great." So that meant that it really could be. Uh, you know, like you always have to make compromises, even in doing something that's purely artistic and there are limitations to the medium and and people and all that sort of stuff. But those are the problems that I would rather deal with. And, and yeah, trying to do something where it's like, this is not like a thing that I've done before. Uh, that was welcome because in a lot of ways, after the last game I worked on, I was extremely burned out of doing things that I felt were like resolving and retreading on issues that I had, you know, tried to address many times before. So with Pentiment saying, We don't have to worry about any of this stuff now we're going to focus on new challenges and new problems um and it was purely done out of a a real passion for the subject matter and the stories that we were telling and really trying to embrace the contributions of everyone on the team because it's a very small team so it was a lot easier to give that direct supportive feedback or critical feedback to people and it just felt like a lot a much tighter experience. It's like an an ensemble game dev experience rather than like a hundred person team or something like that. So there were a lot of challenges, but someone asked me recently if I felt like nervous or scared and never, I didn't like, because, (laughs) because I really had it in my mind that I knew that we were making something that was niche. And as long as there were people that were really into that niche, I didn't really care how many of them there were, you know, it was kind of like. If this is a thousand people like it, then cool, because Xbox seems to be okay with that. As long <laughs> as it's like really, you know, like an artistically cool and appealing thing, Um, you know, it can kind of be take it or leave it. And so I'm like, well, if a lot of people say leave it, that is fine. And, you know, obviously I feel a responsibility towards my teammates and, and things like that. But um, as long as I didn't feel like I was letting them down or making their process of working and being a creative contributor bad (laughs) then i didn't really care i was like we're all working together we're having a good time we dig what we're doing we know there's a a group of people that dig what we're doing and that's all that matters and so in the end it actually was one of the i'm not going to say easy but easiest projects i've ever worked on because it was a it was a through the stress it was always fun and always enjoyable to keep moving forward.
0: Yeah, I mean it it feels like a passion project and the Definitely. first I heard of it was with the the review in the Guardian. I was like, "Wow." <laughs> and they loved it. Everybody loves it. So that must be a really um, you know, gratifying feeling, I guess, affirming that, that the reviews have just been so good.
1: Yeah, and it it really was um, you know, seeing You know, like uh, I got an interview with LeMond that was (laughs) like kind of out of the blue, which I thought was really great. And one of the goals with the project was I did want to potentially reach audiences that don't typically play games or they don't think of themselves as gamers. And so the game was not meant to be mechanically challenging or physically like you have to test hand eye coordination or things like that. Um it was no really for about, me. Yeah, just yeah, I didn't want to have any of that. Like everything was designed to really make it easy to get into and it's really about like do you like storytelling? Do you like the ability to make choices and see how that plays out in the community? Um just to make it really approachable. And so I think that's why in many ways we saw wider coverage from from places like Guardian or Le Monde because they kind of recognize this is this is not like a gamey game. (laughs) It's not a a hardcore game. It's not about shooting or things. It's more about culture and history and relationships. And uh, yeah, so I was very happy. And, you know, there are reviews that just were like, I don't either. I don't like the basic nature of the game, or I don't like the execution of the game, which is totally fair. And I just expected there to be a lot more of those. (laughs) (laughs) Like um, like someone asked me like leading up to the the day before the reviews dropped, like what my expectation was. And I expected there was going to be a chunk of people that were super into it because we already had people internally that were just in love with the game. And then there were going to be people that are like, either like, I hate this game. Like I hate the basic premise of the game or (laughs) I don't think it's executed well. And I expected that split to be 30, 70. With, like, the majority being like, this is not even a game. This sucks. Like, I, this is boring. It's a walking simulator, whatever. Um, <laughs> and, but I had accepted that. I was like, I mean, I, no one likes, you don't like seeing stuff like that, but I was like, okay, like, most people are just going to write this off, but that, that wasn't the result. And so, obviously i'm very happy with that
0: (laughs) yeah no that's that's it's just so great and and tracy and sean i'm just wondering what you know made this a really artistically satisfying project for you guys to work on
2: well i i think we we talked a little bit about it you know a little bit about it but also we also it's so rewarding to feel like you're part of a team that cares at least as much as you do about creating this world that's, you know, grounded in history, but not shackled by it. And, and, uh, and just to have, you know, it's, it's why we love being in an ensemble is like Sean was saying before, you have more ideas in a group than you have by yourself. And, and this was like, there were more ideas with a bigger group, we were all committed to this, this project in our various ways. And so just having collaborators like that is, a thrilling process and being invited to explore it creatively and historically and sonically over three years
3: yeah by the end we were like it's like we're doing our doctorates again (laughs) we're like there's so many rounds of edits there's external auditing right you're like you come out of it you're not really telling anyone about it when it's happening because it seems too crazy. Right. And then at the end you're like, look, this is what I've been doing with all my time. you know <laughs> differently from
2: like like you know, you go to present your final work and you have to defend it. this one, it didn't it never felt like we had to defend it. It was more like so you know how does this fit in And then like when it was released, and yeah the same thing we had no idea how big we just kept hearing it was this niche game and niche for us means like 100 people show up at not at a concert we're like yes or like 50. we made it
3: you 50. know we were like oh my gosh our you know we've we've ensnared 50 people in new york city to, to come to hang to out with us
2: Med run music you know so we kept talking about how this niche thing we're like okay you know like so we kind of i think josh we had like the same feelings as you but like on a totally different scale because we had no idea and then I remember, like when like one of the first preview videos came out, I was like, "Oh, people are gonna see this! They're gonna play it!" Like <laughs> lots of people, you know. And so there's also something really gratifying of, of course, we love this music, and and like anything, like like all passions, they can kind of get relegated to the fringes. And it's really nice when when something can kind of mix them among more people. When like a game can appeal to people who are not just hardcore gamers, and for us. You know when this music that we think is great, but some people may be like, "I would never go to a medieval concert. That sounds so boring." Or or a, or a Renaissance music concert. You know, of vials. Like why? You know, and to and to like have it be in a game where it's like guys, there's a lot of recordings of this stuff done by other awesome ensembles.
3: It's just, <laughs> it's the ultimate, it was the ultimate early music outreach opportunity. Yeah. Thank
1: us. you, Josh. You, you've, done this whole,
3: you've done a mitzvah. <laughs> it's, it's,
1: it's, it's funny because a, a previous game I worked on, uh, Fall at New Vegas, um, when I picked the music for it because it was set in the American Southwest and kind of had a retro vibe, I went back and a lot of the music that I selected for it was 1950s and 60s Western music and it had this very weird effect where it was a very popular game and so this generation of people like maybe like maybe like Gen Z and younger got really into like Marty Robbins and like Gunfighter <laughs> ballads and, and all this stuff so like very classic <laughs> western music so maybe through Pentiment, um they're going to they're going to really get into early music that would be fantastic
2: i mean we can only hope you're That's... like a deep influencer <laughs> yeah, <exactly. you> know?
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh man, before before we go, first of all, it's been amazingly fun to talk with you guys, but there's a vinyl release coming out of the soundtrack and the cover art is absolutely gorgeous. And if you guys could uh, we'd describe it and talk about all the symbolism that the artist put in the cover art, that would just be, that'd be really cool.
1: So uh, the artist that we went with is named Benjamin Vierling, and he, I believe he still uh, lives and works in Northern California. I became familiar with his work through an album cover that he did for Joanna Newsom, who is a, a harp player and singer and the cover was for her album Ease. And it's actually in many ways, it wound up being similar, not intentionally, but it, it's, it's because it's evocative of the time period um, that it's, it's, it's going for. So Benjamin works um, in styles that are drawn from uh, Northern Renaissance, usually German or Dutch or Flemish masters of the 16th century, uh, 15th and 16th century. And he works using Misch technique, which is kind of a, a neo-retro technique where he uses egg tempera and oil um, in alternating layers and it's a very time-consuming process um, but it's also very gratifying um, it did take him 10 months to make the painting by the way um, <laughs> and uh, we went back and forth a lot on the in the pencil sketch stage because one of the things I loved about East and also about uh, the, his album art for Ys and also about some of his other portraits and and that he's drawing from from the period is that they're very rich with many, many small details throughout the entire scene that are telling a story about, in in most cases, if it's portraiture, it's about that specific person. In our case, it's about the story itself. So in in Benjamin's artwork for the cover, there are so many details, it's hard to even focus on all of them, but (laughs) um, some that I would say is, and these are also reflected actually in the opening scene, opening menu of the game, is there's a broken hammer. Let's see, there's a there's a dead red bird, which is a red back shrike. Um, there's a, a broken hammer and a broken burren, which is a, a engraving tool. And those represent the three victims of the, the murders over the game. So Rotvogel, Baron Rotvogel is the red bird. Otto is the hammer. And then uh, Klaus Drucker is the burren. The figures from the um, ideal city in Andreas's mind, which are Beatrice, and saint grobian and prester john and socrates they're on a panel vertically in the background behind andreas um, the thread puller notes are kind of hanging over his head like looming over him in the scene mm. um, in the background you can see the labyrinth which appears in many places throughout the game there's also the there is a mechanical clock next to a sundial with a beetle climbing between them to show the march of time and the replacement of old ways of doing things with new ways of doing things and then as a detail my cat is in there Um, so (laughs) benjamin really wanted to include a cat and he wanted to have it by the 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 bird and i was like well if you're going to put a cat in there put my cat sesame in there so (laughs) (laughs) so he put sesame in there um oh also the other thing is that andreas is holding flowers he's holding genshin's and um edelweiss Uh, Genshin's are featured in the the masterpiece that Andreas makes at the end of act one, and then Edelweiss are of course a very, you know, popular alpine flower um, from that region. So there's, god, there's like, that's like maybe half of them, maybe it's a third of them. There's so much stuff in there. Um, Also, I will say the the added layer of craziness is there is actually a, he painted a pentiment into it. So when he was doing the underpainting, I said, Benjamin... Could you actually put, so in the upper right corner of the painting, there is the winged uh, bull of St. Luke, who's the patron saint of of painters, uh, or of artists, and I asked, could we actually make a pentiment of the Tarotny, which is the Mithraean slaughter of the bull, which is important, obviously, later in the game, and so he painted that first, and then he painted the St. Luke bull over it so wow. it's actually in there and, <laughs> oh man <laughs> and it's, it's crazy because the the actual painting so it took him 10 months i think it's uh i think it's two feet by three feet he will be sending it as soon as it dries which <laughs> is taking a while uh as is very common <laughs> with paintings like that but we will actually be getting the painting itself i i think he so he sent us a a tiff scan tiff format and it was huge and it was so, it's so colorful. There's so many colors in it. And when we tried to, com- like, tried to save it as a JPEG, it actually, there's so many colors that it just compressed all of the color out of it. So it's it's just that rich and intense because of all the layers of egg tempera and oil. It was, ai uh, don't think I'll have an experience like this again in terms of getting a, a custom piece of artwork, but yeah. And then the, the great challenge was he didn't do it in a square format. And initially, our graphic designers were trying to crop it. I'm like, mm, no, 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 no! no, no, no. <laughs> like, don't crop anything at all. Like, we'll put in borders, which is what we did. But I'm like, no, this like, this work is this thing. Do not crop a single piece of it, please. Um, but no, wow. very excited about that. We also got it as a double. It has a gatefold, so it has extensive notes. Um, you can see all the songs that use O Fortuna Desperata listed out <laughs> <laughs> and referenced everywhere. Um, yeah. So yeah, the vinyl, I think is is really great. Um, I'm very excited for it. Oh, that's just so awesome. I mean, no wonder it took him 10 months. And,
0: yeah. <laughs> and, and Tracy and Sean, you, you talk about, um, you we're talking about attracting 50 people to a, to a concert in New York. How can people find out when, when Alchemy is performing?
3: You can come to see our website (laughs) www.alchemy.org and you can on our website join our mailing list where we can keep you apprised of all of our activities you can also follow us on facebook twitter and instagram
2: and we're about to start we have so much media from recording all of our concerts for the past two years uh, that we then release as video concerts and we still do release video concerts uh, if you're on our mailing list, you might get a special discount to those concerts. <laughs> <laughs> but we do have a lot of media that we're about to start just releasing kind of piecemeal onto uh, YouTube. So that's another place you
3: can follow us and yeah, yeah, subscribe. As it comes out. There's More a, there's, music. There's a
1: lot soon. of good stuff on their YouTube channel already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And yeah, so much,
3: sure. literally hundreds more tracks <laughs>
2: that
3: we need to post. <laughs> we had some other priorities.
1: You
0: know, we, like
3: we to you music know, for a really cool video game. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah.
0: Oh man, well, it has been so, so much fun to talk with all of you guys about it. I really appreciate your time and hopefully we'll be able to, I don't know, maybe do it again sometime, but thank you all so much. Thank,
4: thank you. Thank you. <laughs>